Thank you for joining us today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 204. Today's podcast is brought to you by Mainlight. Mainlight is a lighting rental partner who combines the resources of a national company with the personal touch of a local provider. To achieve that objective, Mainlight is proud to have opened four new locations in the last two years. Mainlight is equally dedicated to expanding their rental inventory. They consistently purchase the latest technologies in lighting, truss, and console consoles, from the newest truss solutions to the full array of leading control consoles, your lighting will have the technological support it needs to reach peak performance. They also carry a robust inventory of IP65 rated fixtures, giving you a lighting solution to any outdoor venue, come rain, wind, or shine. From east to west, Mainlight is the partner you trust with the gear you want from Mainlight.com. Visit Mainlight.com to chat with their live representatives across all of their locations in Wilmington, Delaware, Nashville, Tennessee, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Teterboro, New Jersey. And this episode is also brought to you by Act Entertainment. The new Argo 6 FX wash fixture builds on the incredible liquid effects and optical fidelity of its larger brother, Zonda 9. With an IP65 rating in an astounding small and lightweight frame. Capable of reliably reproducing over 4 billion colors with up to 13,000 lumens. The new Argo 6 FX is at home at the opera, the theme park, the concert stage, the runway, or the theater. Pursuing excellence everywhere has never been easier. Act Entertainment is thrilled to bring the Ayrton Argo 6 FX to North America and can't wait to show it to you. Learn more by visiting actentertainment.com. Whoa, episode 204. So a um, bunch of stuff I want to talk about today, actually. Uh, first of all, uh, this is almost as divisive or divisive. Is the word divisive or divisive? It's almost as divisive as politics, uh, COVID shots, and everything else that's divisive out there right now. But this sphere, the Las Vegas uh, MGM sphere. So... You know, I don't know what people's feelings are. I'm going to try really hard for once in my life to reserve my feelings and uh, not say much about that. But I'm wondering what people think. Uh, feel free to shoot me a message, geezers at gearsource.com, or leave a comment on YouTube or uh, in the podcast. But, you know, I've been seeing all of these YouTube videos, and I've had a lot of conversations with people about what they think about it. And um, again, I don't really want to share my opinion. Let's just say I'm not the most positive person. Uh, I think the tech is insane. The tech is, is stuff that we've never seen or done before as an industry. It's crazy. 
I think as a planetarium or something, this place is completely nuts. It's wild. Um, you know, I've heard like Brad, who who works with us at Gear Source, was telling me that uh, because he used to work at Solotech when this was all being planned and, and starting to be put together. But um, I guess LED panels were delivered in sections. I think they had, I don't remember how many panels in a section, but I think he was telling me that like there were something like uh, six or eight of those sections that could fit into a truck. And at one point they were delivering something like 10 trucks a day for six months straight. And so there's just an enormity of, of gear, of LED panels specifically, because this thing is just a giant round video wall, uh, two-sided, by the way, inside and outside. Um, and the other statistic that Brad was telling me is the exterior of the building is the largest outdoor screen in the world, and the interior is the largest indoor screen in the world. So it's just crazy. I mean, but, you know, Again, watching some of those videos, and everyone's going to have your opinion, and I respect everyone's opinions. I've heard people who think it's the most unbelievable, amazing thing they've ever seen, and I've heard other people who say, similar to me, that it's very distracting. You know, it's it's really almost impossible to watch the band. If you're there to see the band in concert, you're probably going to walk away going, I couldn't even find the band. Like, literally, when I was watching the first video... I was looking and looking and looking and I just couldn't figure out where Bono was. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, again, if you're there to see a concert, a live band, then you might be disappointed. It's just a wild video show. If you're there to see a wild video show, you're going to be blown away. I mean, it is like nothing you've ever seen before from everything I've heard. And also the audio, uh, you know, is something that's never been done before. So, there's a lot of first times in that show, and um, no matter what, for our industry, I think, you know, we can check that box and say, hey, we've just, you know, done things that nobody's ever done before, and this is incredible, and take a look. Um, I've also heard some bad news that, uh, at least a rumor that I've heard, so please don't take this too seriously. I'm not uh, uh, putting facts out there. I'm putting rumors out there. But um, I've heard that nothing's booked after you two in this building. And so, you know, financially, that can't be a, a positive, you know, because it's a $2.3 billion uh, spend. And so they need to keep that building full. And I think there's only so many shows, so many types of shows that are going to fit in there and make sense. Uh, otherwise, it's just going to be a visual extravaganza, which I think they'll probably do okay with, but I just don't think the math is going to work out at that point. I think you need you 2 and the Stones and Paul McCartney in there. And seeing Paul McCartney in the crowd tells me that they're at least thinking about it. So, um, you know, I think a lot of acts wouldn't work as a, uh, as a residency in that building. Like, I, I just think there's a ton of them that wouldn't work. So time will tell. I've been wrong so many times, and I'm probably wrong again. Um, plasma, plasma, plaza. <laughs> Plaza, the show, has come and gone. I've heard mixed reviews. Uh, I heard it was a great show. I heard it was a poor show. I heard tech was incredible, but nothing mind-blowing. So, um, again, love to hear your thoughts. Put comments in YouTube or send me messages, geezers at GearSource, and love to talk about it in the future uh, on, on other podcasts. Um, LDI is also coming up. Speaking of trade shows, weird that it's in December. 
uh, you know, obviously when everybody was looking at the calendar, when this Formula One race got announced, you know, having a Formula One race at the same time as LDI would have been a dumpster fire. It would have been unbelievably hard. Like people already in our industry complain about the prices of hotels going up in Vegas. You know, when you're staying at the Westgate for five, six thousand dollars a night because there's a race in town, then you're really going to complain. So, um, so yeah, thank God they moved it. It is weird though. You know, I think it's like a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday or something, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I don't know, but I know that it involves like a Monday and Tuesday. And so I don't know what that's going to do to attendance. Uh, obviously the industry's doing really well this year. So hopefully attendance is big. And I think LDI did an amazing job last year. It was an incredible show. I think they'll see some positive momentum again, but you know, this is another gut punch that they didn't need, I guess, but, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, speaking of Vegas and, and all of this crazy stuff going on, you know, I've had a lot of these sphere conversations over the past couple of days. And, and one friend told me, um, he had a, a bum leg, I guess. And, you know, there's this parking issue, like between formula one and the sphere and the formula one construction getting in the way of the sphere parking. And so, um, but there's also the stadium. And so, um, a friend told me that he went, I don't know if it was to a football game or an event or what it was, but he went to the stadium and booked in advance because he had something, I think he had surgery on his leg or something. And so he had a handicap pass. So he booked in advance handicap, handicap parking. And when he got there, the handicap parking was four blocks away. And so I don't even know what he paid for that parking. It had to be crazy, but the handicap parking was four blocks away from the stadium. And so kind of defeats the purpose, (laughs) you know? So I think there's a bit of a parking problem in, uh, in Vegas. And somebody said, no, there's not a parking problem, you know, for the stadium on days of football games, there's 8,000 parking, uh, spaces within, I can't remember what it was within a quarter mile of the stadium or half a mile of the stadium or something like that. And I was thinking 8,000, what's the capacity? 60, 70,000. So I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Sponsors, I wanted to talk about just for a second. Our newest sponsor, Live Event Productions, is a uh, roll-up of some really great production companies, including uh, Gemini Sound and Lighting and Staging and Video and whatever they're called today. But Gemini, which does all of those disciplines, uh, Delicate Productions out of California, who everyone knows, you know, Smoother brought Delicate Productions or Open Delicate Productions in the U.S., after coming here with Super Tramp, great history, great company. Uh, Zenith Lighting, which is a good friend of all of ours. He's been on the show. Uh, Chaz Harrington and uh, Active, uh, Active Design and Lighting out of, out of Atlanta. And some other companies that uh, are becoming involved as well. They've also brought in some new fireworks and pyro companies and, and special effects companies. So really great company, really great leadership. Stephen Vitale is a good friend of mine as well. And so uh, I love that company. But in addition to live events, we have Stratum Productions, another really great Midwestern-based company. Uh, Mainlight, of course, one of today's sponsors. Act Entertainment, also one of today's sponsors. Elation, who everyone knows and loves. And, of course, Gear Source. So thank you to our sponsors. We appreciate our sponsors. Without the sponsors, I'm paying all of these expenses out of my own pocket, so it's nice to at least pay for some of the costs of operating a 
uh, uh, podcast and YouTube channel and everything else that we're doing now. So, um, and we are going to start marketing a little more heavily and building our audience. So we appreciate our audience. Thank you for listening, of course. Um, but we need more of you. So share the podcast with your friends. We appreciate it. And finally, an announcement, and I've posted this on social media as well. So if anyone has seen the movie War Dogs, great movie. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's very good. And so War Dogs is about a couple of uh, guys who got together and and were um, selling arms, basically. They were arms dealers and found a loophole, basically, in the federal government that they could squeeze into among all the massive companies that are arms dealers. And they did very, very well. One of those gentlemen is named David Packhouse. He's a guy from Miami who just kind of fell into this arms trading business and did very well in it for a while, but then kind of got screwed. And you got to watch the movie. I don't want to give it all away to you. But David Packhouse has recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, I think, started an audio company and reached out to me and wanted to come on Geezers of Gear. So we have David Packhouse coming on uh, later in October, I think near the end of October. That will be a big one. I mean, he's been on a lot of other podcasts with a couple hundred thousand people listening and stuff. He's got such an incredible story. So although we are talking about his audio stuff, uh, we'll spend some time talking about uh, what it was like like to be one of the the biggest arms dealers. He did a he did a deal, you know, that's in the movie, and I don't want to be too much of a spoiler, but he did a deal for around three hundred million dollars. And you know, I don't care what you're selling if you're doing a three hundred million dollar deal, that's pretty cool. So, anyways, um, with all of that said, I am going to now focus your attention on today's guest who is a gentleman that I don't think needs much of an introduction. Uh, He's been involved in lighting design. I didn't prepare any kind of an opening speech here uh, or an introduction, but he's been involved in lighting design for, I believe, over 50 years now, starting in theater, moving on into uh, concert uh, design, television, film design, became known as as one of the biggest in in that world, uh, along with his partner who uh, is recently deceased, uh, Richard Ocean. So, um, of course, I'm talking about a gentleman named Lee Rose. So let's go ahead and welcome Lee Rose onto the podcast. Lee, welcome. How are you? I'm better now that we've gone through our technology, hell. <laughs> we we should have recorded that part, actually. That would have been fun to, uh, that is, to yeah. play for people. You know, you're... I would say not atypical of uh, all the other lighting designers and and uh, television folks specifically that I get on where, you know, it's like, okay, I need the angle. I need the light from this side. I need the light over here. I know there's, uh, you know, reasons behind that, but it's just funny because usually I allow myself an extra 15, 20 minutes at the front end for most yeah. people. And it's because uh-huh. of either, you know, computer problems, which you had, lighting problems, which you had, <laughs> connection problems, which we both had. So, yeah. But w- welcome. Thanks for doing this. I know you're you. uh, probably uh, supposed to be mowing the lawn or something because you're retired now, right? Uh, no, actually, the, the gardener was supposed to be here this morning. He hasn't been here yet. But uh, my end is at this point um, uh, recovering from the trip that we took to Europe for 24 days and my wife got COVID during the trip. So that was oh, like boy. a whole nine yards. 
yeah, and then catching up on all the stuff that needed to be caught up on. And now that I'm actually retired, my plan is to become a um, an online photographer for sale, um, doing Milky Way and underwater photography. So I have wow. all that stuff organized for next year. Do you know Creech? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know that Creech Except is the difference between me. And- the difference between me and Creech, and um, we have a mutual friend, Marty Wolf. I don't know if you know yeah. Marty Wolf. He was originally Doobie Brothers LD, but he's yeah. a good friend yeah. of mine. Yeah. Marty and Creech go after sharks. I avoid sharks. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm more of a, like, you know, slow, low, easygoing, relaxed, you know, kind of thing. And those guys, I went out diving with Marty, and the first thing you want to do is go look for an ocean white tip, you know. <laughs> Oh, big ass fucking shark. It's like, yeah, yeah okay. not my, not my idea of fun. Yeah. Well, I, I follow, I don't farty, follow uh, Marty, but I should, but I follow yeah. Creech on, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And some of his pictures are just ridiculous. Like, I mean, you know, like the shark has got his mouth open and he's this far yeah. away from you, you know? Oh yeah. I can, I it's, can see more cavities on the shark than I can see in my own mouth. So I, I, don't really freak out if I run into a shark, you know, especially a reef shark because they're not yeah. really bad or anything. But yeah. but it's like I don't actively go after the tiger sharks and the bull sharks and, uh, you know, the ocean white tips, you know, the yeah. ones that are known for biting people that those yeah. guys seem to like really entire. They really want to get a shot of that. Yeah. So I don't feel more, any need for that. Are you more into like reef and, and underwater things that are not necessarily going to bite you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I. I've been doing a bunch of wide angle, which is fun on reefs, doing uh, liveaboards like the in Belize and the Cayman Islands and those oh, kind cool. of places. Nice. Um, I started doing some macro photography stuff. There's a place down in um, off of above Fort Lauderdale. It's um, above West Palm Beach called Blue Heron Bridge. Yeah, of course. Near Riviera Beach. Yeah. And there's some wonderful macro stuff down there. And that's so, where uh, that's where Creech goes out of usually when he's in South Florida. He goes out of that marina there. Out of Heron, yeah, yeah. I was just down there because I, I I had a, a spinal cord bleed and um, I had to have a big surgery. I wasn't sure I'd still be able to scuba dive after that. And oh, so wow. I went down and a, a friend of mine who's a dive instructor down there. She took she took me out. We went out for a couple of days. And I was able to do all the things I needed to do. So it was like, okay, that's back on the table. Thank you. That's amazing. I mean, as yeah. we age, obviously checking boxes on things that we can't do anymore <laughs> is depressing. Yes. You know, like, so I told you before we started recording, I'm up here in Canada right now. I'm from Calgary originally, and I have a house here near Banff. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I've been an avid skier since I was seven or eight years old. And I'm a pretty good skier, but the problem is I can't do a lot of the stuff not because I don't have the skills anymore, but because I don't have the muscles anymore to do some of those things. And so it's depressing, you know, because like I'll ski with people who are older than me, but they're skiing a hundred days a year. Like if I come up here and ski four days a year, that's a lot for me right now. And to get right. yourself in skiing shape in four days, it's impossible. You know, it's just impossible. So I come up, I yeah. do two or three really hard runs and then I'm like, mm-hmm. let's go in the lodge and grab a beer or something. And then my legs are sore and I just don't even feel like going back out again. So it sucks. Well, I was I had lunch with Marty Wolf not too long ago. He was in from Maui. He actually lives in Maui now. So nice. yeah. um, he was in to visit family and we went and had lunch and we were talking about the end of lunch uh, that 
we had turned into a couple old Jewish altacockers because all we did during lunch was talk about what we had gone through, what parts of us were bothering us now, what doctors we'd seen recently, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, but that's where it all ends up, right? No matter what, you know, it's... Getting old ain't for pussies, but at the same time, the other option to not getting old is not getting getting old. old. Unfortunately, at this age, quite a number of people in my uh, Rolodex, shall we say, are in the RIP category. And that, you know, that's happening way too often these days. Yeah, no, I know. I get it. Like, I, you know, social media is really great until people start dying. And then it's just like it feels like a barrage comes all at once of you know, people that, you know, or you're very close mm-hmm. with, or maybe in your own family or whatever. It's, it's a bummer. Like some days I just want to shut it off and not even know, don't tell me, you know, Yeah. but, uh, so <clears throat> you are officially retired now. You're not working at all anymore. Or are you just working? Selectively yeah. Or? You know, I was, I have been doing the Hollywood portion, the LA party for new year's rock and Eve for the last 38 years. Uh, since New Year's Rock and Eve, 1985. Yeah. And that's a show that if they said, we'd like you to do it again this year, I would have said yes to. Right. Um, I've said no to a bunch of things this year that I just didn't feel like I wanted to do. And then a couple of months ago, um, I got the call from them saying they were going in a different direction this year. Oh. And so I was fine with it. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know Matt Firestone? Yes, I do. Yep. Yeah. Matt Firestone, who was one of my programmers with Yanni at the Taj Mahal in Forbidden City, um, he got, they called Bob Barnhart, he wasn't available, who they called Matt. Matt called me and said, I'm not going to do it unless you say it's okay. And I said, Matt, I'm fine with it. I've, yeah. 38 years was a nice run. I'm done. I've had enough. Because the other shows I've been working on in the last couple of years haven't been fun. It yeah. just hasn't been fun. Other than yeah. New Year's, which I enjoyed doing, and mostly because on New Year's, I had Martin Phillips doing my media server. I don't know if you know Martin. I don't. Um, uh, Martin was LD for like Daft Punk and Bauhaus. He's kind of this English kind of really twisted individual. Do. Yeah, I probably do. Yes, he's, he's, him and I have a lot of fun together. He was a moving light programmer on New Year's Rock and Eve for a number of years till we started okay. doing screens like 20-something years ago. And then he started doing media server for me. But between him and a great assistant that I got, Cameron Pirat, who was my assistant for the last couple of years, and the content producer, because I also handle screens on that show, the team that I had with Tony Ward gaffing for me from PRG, yeah. so that not only did the package come out of the shop correctly, but if there was a problem, nobody says no to Tony when he calls about something. Yeah. Yeah. It was just so comfortable to do and fun to program like 30 different performances, you know. Yeah. But the fact that they wanted to go in a different direction, they got a new director a couple of years ago and new producers. And so pretty much me and one producer were the last guys from 85 that were still there. And yeah. so it was like, okay, fine. I'm done. Yeah. Wow. So you're not yeah. doing anything now, like you're turning everything down or you're still going to do one or two things. I haven't decided whether I'm going to keep my union card for next year or not. Yeah. Um, if someone would have to call with something really interesting that I felt like it would have to be a project I wanted to do with people I wanted to work with. Yeah. Otherwise at this point, I consider myself a Milky way photographer and an underwater photographer. So Milky way photographer, you're literally taking pictures of 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I can send you some of the stuff that you so you can look I'd at it. I'd love to um, see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, basically um, the guy, David Palmer used to be with um, Steely Dan a billion years ago that I know um, did this great photo. I saw he's a photographer who does a lot of weird stuff, but he'd show me this one photo he'd done of the Milky Way over uh, Crater Lake up in Oregon. Okay. And it was just this amazing photo. And I said, well, okay, that's how that, looks interesting this is about maybe seven or eight years ago and i went out to uh um paramount ranch where they shoot in uh, like agora i don't know if you know the area outside no. of la it's a uh, it's it's one of those old western towns out in the middle of okay. uh, like in a dark spot you know it's where they do a lot of shooting and there's like a little old western street there but they were doing an astronomy night and it's really dark out there so i went out there i took my camera out there i said okay let's try this so, you know, fooled around with it, had a lot of fun, enjoyed it, started getting some shots that I was kind of interested in, said, well, OK, let me go. And what I did is I would rent a Mercedes uh, Sprinter camper van yep. and throw my camera gear in the back and then go off to, and you know, as a, going to Joshua Tree um, above Ojai, California, just places around here. There's a there's actually a map that shows dark sky. And you can look for dark skies where at the southeast, which is kind of where the Milky Way comes up, there's no city lights in that direction. And I started okay. doing these little trips for like three, four, five days, whatever, went up to the Eastern Sierra, you know, and the great thing about it was I love the fact that there are no producers telling me, hurry up, no one telling me we, we've got the shot, let's move on. Yeah. Uh, no one telling me we have to wrap now, you know, so it was yeah. like just me. And there's a place down in Southern, down by San Diego called the uh, Borrego Springs. And there's 128 of these metal sculptures around town, dinosaurs and all kinds of crazy stuff that's cool. out there, dragons. And they're not lit. So I went out there one night with these little LED puck lights and these little tiny LED spotlights. And I spent the entire night just trying to light these things to match the exposure you need to get the Milky Way in the background. Yeah. And I got some great ones. I got some that came out so really good. Let yeah. me ask you, does, does Milky Way do like, this is a stupid question, but does it appear every night? Is it like a given or? It, it starts to appear in our skies because the way that earth travels right. around the sun and also the way where we are in the, in the Milky Way um, in about April, May, Okay. And it ends about September. Um, and what happens is in April and May, it starts to come up around three, four, five o'clock in the morning. So it's really up, but then the sun's up. Yeah. And then the other end of the scale is at the end of the season, around October, September, it comes up seven, eight o'clock, you know, but just after sunset. So right. June, July are like the, the best months. Um, there was a, uh, I actually went out and did a workshop at Joshua Tree um in the middle of june and it was perfect it was like 11 o'clock at night and you know the milky way was right up you get the curve the great curve in the sky oh that's yeah. cool i look forward to seeing yeah. some of those pictures so you know up here in in canada um you know it's northern lights and so yes. we're we follow all these facebook pages and stuff to find out i forget what the technical stuff is but there's these numbers that you're following when um you know the the chances are really high and i think it's gases or something whatever it is but 
we follow this solar, and, and solar it'll go, wind. it's what? It's the solar wind, the particles coming from the sun is what oh. excites the molecules in the atmosphere that causes the northern lights. Well, there you go. There's so the, the more the solar the more the solar wind is blowing, you know, the, the, the higher the particle count is hitting the Earth's atmosphere. Right. And they get tend to get sucked down to the north and south poles because that's where the magnetic field's the strongest. So right. you, that's why you get them in the north. We used to get them in Ohio where I was growing up, you know, on yeah. certain days. But you guys are a little farther north than that. Well, yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, I remember growing up seeing them all the time. But, you know, my girlfriend's British. She's never seen them before. So she was like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is amazing. So she was up till you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, some nights taking pictures and I'd see them the next morning. But, um, but you were smart enough to sleep through it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, here in this general area where I am, there's loads of mountains. There's not a lot of light pollution or anything, but there's loads of mountains. And mm -hmm. so it's not always really easy to see them because you're kind of looking like along the, the earth. You're not looking way up in the sky necessarily. And so sometimes the mountains are in the way and stuff, but she got some really great pictures this year. I, the Northern Lights were pretty spectacular. When I was when I was young, I don't know, 19, 18 years old, I played in a band, and we went to a Nuvik Northwest Territories for like 12 weeks or 16 weeks or something. And um, we were hired by like one bar to come and play in that bar for 16 weeks. <clears throat> you know, they had two bands in town, and we were one of them. And... Once it got to like probably the beginning of September, where it was sort of normal night and day, I mean, literally, you could lay on your back in a field and just look straight up, and they were just dancing all over the sky. It, it's one of the most in incredible memories I have of that kind of thing, you know, because otherwise I've seen them my whole life. I, I grew up in Calgary. Yeah. So, but yeah, the Milky Way thing, I've just never uh, paid much attention to. It, it just something I saw this one picture, it kind of got me into it and I've kind of gotten really into it. And uh, there's actually some Facebook groups with people. And then there's also now they have these uh, rotators. Um, you're limited to about 20 to 30 seconds of an exposure because the Earth's rotating. Right. And they have these devices that you can line up with the North Star that counter rotate to the Earth. So you can do like three minute exposures, four minute exposures, oh, which means you can run a lower ISO and get a cleaner image, but you have to kind of like, you have to rough it in with a laser pointer to the North star. And then you have to take a polar scope and what time of the evening it is line it up. So, but it's, it's yeah. But for guys like me who enjoy that stuff, it's kind yeah. of fun. And especially if there's nobody there telling me to hurry up, you know, yeah. which is the best part about it. That is so cool. So between, yeah. I, yeah, I between that you, and I, the underwater I, stuff. I'll send you a link to this, this Facebook, book group that we follow that's on the uh it's called like aurora chasers alberta or something like that it's and i mean these people some of the pictures they take are just unbelievable and then they explain what camera and what exposure and all of this different mm -hmm. stuff like me yeah iphone 14 <laughs> you know no other information i for iphone 14 11 30 at night you know that's it so. Well, I tell you, this trip that we just took, I took my, you know, I have a full frame Canon camera, you know, big expensive camera, the one I used to shoot Milky Way with. And I took 99% of my pictures on my Galaxy S22 because yeah. it has a, you know, 100 pixel, 100 megapixel uh, sensor in it. And the great thing is that that tells me where I shot the picture at. So I can, yeah. you know, 
like I get the the date, the time, and the location, so I can yeah. figure out where I was when I shot them. Yeah. So almost everything I shot was on my phone. Just yeah. takes such great pictures these days. Yeah. No, it, it's yeah. incredible what they've done with these camera phones. You know, I mean, I hate to sound ridiculously old, but if we went back, you know, twenty five years or something, and said the things that you were going to be carrying in your pocket, and the fact that you wouldn't have right. to bring a you know, a digital SLR camera with you on a trip or whatever, you'd be like, ah, come on, get out of yeah. here, you know, but we'd also be in a lot more trouble if they had camera phones, you know, 30 or 40 <laughs> years ago, <laughs> we'd all be part of the me too movement. So, well, I remember Richard ocean and I, when we, we bought two Panasonic lunchbook cellular phones in the late eighties yeah. that were like a thousand bucks each and a dollar a minute for phone calls. Yeah. Cause we would use them on the set where they didn't have production phones. Right. And it was like the, the, the big phone. I always wish I had hang hung onto that sucker, you know, because yeah. there's such a, you look at it now and you go, yeah. Yeah. Compared no, to what, it's... compared to the computer you're carrying in your, in your pocket yeah. now. Well, and then the Motorola yeah. brick, of course, you know, I had one of those yes. and, but I, I was in Canada. I was in Canada at the time, and I think it was like twenty five hundred bucks and like two bucks a minute, you know, to use yeah. it or whatever. It was crazy. So it was funny. Technology's come a long way. I worked with a technology, uh, technology, uh, an installer up here. I was selling sound and lighting systems into theater mm -hmm. and and churches and nightclubs and whatever. And uh, the head of installation, his name was Mike Bradford, that I worked with. And we would travel together to these job sites, and we'd be in his van, and his phone would ring, and somebody would go, is Marcel there? And he'd be like, yeah. And he'd hand his phone to me. And finally, like weeks later, he figured out that I was forwarding my phone to his because we were only allowed a certain number of minutes per month you know, from, on our expense account. And so I was just forwarding my calls to him. So people kept calling his phone for me. And I'm like, I don't know. I must have bad signal or something. I don't know. And uh, he finally busted. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me ask you, I, I'm, I was curious, right when we booked this, you were still working during when COVID hit, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, was, I was working. I kind of considered myself semi-retired. Oh, okay. I, and I think partially because most of my clients had either retired or died off. Yeah. And I wasn't actively pursuing new clients. I was, you know, kind of getting to that point. Um, yeah. I was fortunate enough to have 18 years at Design Partners, yeah. which was um, a union signatory design firm, which meant that we got like 56 hours, union hours a week, like 50 weeks a year. Yeah. So that added up to a lot of, you know, lifetime medical pension, all that stuff that was, you know, I'm, ex I'm so grateful for that because that combined with the fact that I don't have kids put me in a position to be able to say, you know what, this has I been fun, but time, yeah. time for something else. Or, yeah. you know, the travel or the dive trips are more important than actually going to. And I, th I think it's as I got older also, my tolerance level for stupidity decreased. Isn't that incredible? And yeah. And um, just some of the people I was working with, some of the people that were asking me to do stuff, it's like, you know, that we, we want this, 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 and this, but we only have the money for this. It's like, yeah. well, if you don't have the money for that, you can't have that. 
Yeah. I get tired of explaining that to people. Yeah. You know? Nicely. Yeah. That's it's hard to do, you know, because at I some think point I started like, to not explain it to him not so nicely, yeah. which probably didn't help me with, you know, the idea of keeping new clients and stuff. But I was I was really fine with it because, you know, as long as I've been doing this, it's just it got to the point where it's like, okay, I know how to do what you're asking me to do. But if you won't give me the tools to do it, I'm not willing to like bang my head against the wall. And, yeah. you know, <clears throat> well, most to... of us, most of us entered this industry, not to become rich business people, uh, you know, but, <laughs> but because we really enjoy doing it. And when it gets to yes. a point where someone's making it no longer enjoyable, it's like, eh, your tolerance is, especially as we age, the tolerances yes. go down heavily and the annoyances go up, uh, yeah. you know, equally. And so, yes. yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. Well, there's but, a formula. It's like, you know, the um, the rate is the uh, aggravation factor times the time evolved in the job. So it's like if if you want me in you, and you're going to give me shit through the whole thing, then, you know, it's going to cost you a lot of money. If you don't want a lot of money, you don't want to give me a lot of money. That's fine. Yeah. It's that old adage of good, cheap and fast. Pick two. Yeah. You know, I know funny, producers the in the second television business. You're the second. I was on a call with lawyers earlier today in a in a negotiation that I'm in, and that same line came out on that call twice in one morning. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason I was asking you about COVID because I know a lot of younger people in in television and film, and um, between COVID and then the strike, you know, so many of those people are just like, oh my god, you know, what else? Like, don't ask, by the way, because you're just tempting fate or whatever but yeah no kidding uh, i'm guessing the strike didn't impact you much for the same reasons right like you weren't counting on the the income necessarily no this the strike happened at the point at which i wasn't i was like if it happens it happens it doesn't happen it doesn't happen but i had yeah. turned down like big brother this year and the daytime yeah. emmys and and when when new year's was floated out there it was like okay well if it happens it happens if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen i don't care either way yeah yeah um, so, so the you know, strike I, didn't affect me at all. I want to jump into your career, but it's funny because, you know, and I'm sharing this on video, but, you know, most people come in with like a, uh, you know, a little bio that's like a quarter of a page or something. And you, you've got three pages you sent me. And I'm like, well, wait a sec, what should we talk about here? Like, you know, well, we've got only, about an hour. Like a third of a page that's actually a bio. The rest of it is just all the crap that I've done in the last, yeah. you know, because no, I, mean, I mean, I think it's... that started in the that's like from '84 when I started in television. Yeah, that what I sent you is my credits list. Yeah, I actually want to go back beyond that because I think you started okay. in theater, didn't you? I did. Um, basically, I got my start start um, at the junior high school I went to had a a, a kind of a well known children's theater attached to it, so it had a fairly decent uh, theater with a shop behind it and all that. And, Is that in um, California? Uh, no, in Ohio. Growing oh, up, okay, I grew up right. outside yeah, of outside of Cleveland in a little town called University Heights, Ohio. Okay. And that theater, my sixth grade, seventh grade English teacher was in charge of the stage at the junior high school. So he used to send me down there to prep for auditorium stuff, and I'd get out of class to go do that stuff. And I met some of the people who were working on the children's theater, and I came in and started hanging out with them, working on the children's theater. Um, you know, and early on, I realized, you know, when I couldn't paint a cartoon tree for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, that maybe uh, the lighting would be a better place for me to be anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, I came out 
my grandfather was one of the charter members of the Cleveland Motion Picture Operators Local. So I kind of had a background in kind of the entertainment industry anyway. Excuse me. No worries. Oh, there we go. So um, started working with this children's theater and that kind of went into when we left um, Ohio, my dad dragged us to Arizona in 1969 for a year. He thought he was going to get into business with his brother-in-law. Um, and while I was there, um, I got kind of a job, a, a pro bono, you know, an intern job assisting the LD at the Phoenix Little Theater. And that season in 1970, the end of the season, he got a job in New York to do a show and left. Oh. And so the last show of the season, the company manager said, well, you're his assistant, you do it. And he said, we'll pay you $150. And, you know, I'm 15 years old. I'm getting $150 in 1970, which was a shitload of money. No kidding. Um, so I did your um, Cole Porter's Anything Goes at the Phoenix Little Theater with my first paying lighting job in like the summer of 1970. That's wild. That's great. Unfortunately, the business thing didn't work out with my dad's brother-in-law and he dragged us back to Cleveland, you know, the next year. And okay. so I got back into Cleveland, went back into working for theaters around Cleveland, did some stuff with the, um, the junior company, the Cleveland Ballet Guild. I found ballet to be a little more interesting than straight theater because you could be a little more creative with the lighting, yeah, which I kind of enjoyed. And then, you know, basically we're talking, it's 1971, 72, discovered drugs and rock and roll music. And, you know, theater didn't have the allure that it had before. Right. So I just started doing local bands around town and uh, then started working at the, there was a concert nightclub in Cleveland called the Agora Ballroom. And it was like Springsteen played there when he wasn't playing Ashbury Park a couple times a year. Bad Company did their first tour there. We would have these great bands, you know, like, you know, Brian Auger, Todd Rundgren with Hello People, kind of really interesting stuff there. And, and what, there was, what a was your role there, though? Well, it was staging, basically. I did some lighting, but mostly staging there. Yeah. And there was a group of us. We were called the Rowdy Roadies. And we would, you know, just kind of try to be the most professional crew that was high on drugs that you could come into a club and work with. <laughs> and Sounds we, like the 70s. It was it was a crazy, crazy situation. And we had a blast and we were really enjoying ourselves. And what happened was in 76, I believe it was, um, this little band out of New England called Boston. Yeah. Came through came through the club when they were doing a two week or they was they started on a club tour when their album first album came out. And, you know, I met the LD and the band's manager as part of the job working there. And they went and like a week and a half, two weeks later, they canceled the club tour and they were booking an arena tour. And the guy who was the LD for the band had a lighting company in, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, his name was Andy Poland. Him and Bob Morrissey had a company called Polico. And Andy called. I did business Andy with Polico in like the 90s, I think. They were yeah. still around. And then yeah. They well, they're now East Coast Lighting and Production right, Services. Course, yeah. Bob's still running it, yeah. So they called me up and said, hey, come to Rhode Island. We want to build a rig and go out on the road with Boston. I said, I'm there. So flew to Rhode Island, and we threw a rig together. I think it was two towers and a truss. And we ran off on this two-truck, two-bus tour with Boston playing arenas. And that lasted 
I don't know, another six or seven months. And then I went out with the outlaws with them and then, you know, came back to Cleveland, did some work around town and they just started bopping in and out of town doing stuff. And then they called back for the 78 tour that actually lasted over a year. Um, but at that time they decided that they wanted to bring it into the lighting designer. And that's when Richard Ocean came in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was brought in to be the LD and I was one of the crew and the crew on that tour was Bob Morrissey, me, Roy Bennett, Leroy Bennett. Yeah. And a guy named Joe Estrella, who's passed on now. Yeah. Um, and the four of us went out on the road and we were out almost a full year before um, it ended in the U.S. And then I went with Richard to uh, Japan to do the J Japanese tour, to kind of be the head production electrician for him on the Japanese tour. And then, you know, after that, it was just like I went out with, I was out with uh, Molly Hatchet for a while. I was out with Asia for a while. Just doing a bunch of bands so until literally literally your first two tours were boston though correct that's yeah. not a bad well, way to start right the first oddly enough the first job i had i think it was in 75 um harold blumberg which has a company had a company called audio freaks in pittsburgh it was a sound mm -hmm. company yeah they had all community light and sound i don't know if you remember they were all yeah. uh, fiberglass horns everything yeah. was big fiberglass mm -hmm. horns he hired me and I came his, I came to Pittsburgh, worked for him for a while. Uh, I mixed monitors for Pure Prairie League. And um, then when he got the job, we were out doing Jay Giles. Um, I was not having fun mixing monitors for Jay Giles. That was just a little too much for me. Why is um, that? Well, you know, when he blows the whistle in Whammer Jammer and, you know, like blew me off my chair at the monitor console and they weren't really happy for with anything they got from the monitor guy and it's like you monitor guys like you might as well paint a target on your forehead yeah you know unless you're really good so and i didn't really want to be a sound guy anyway so you know that was like okay i'm gonna go back and try to get a lighting job somewhere yeah 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 the funny thing side story is um the tour manager for pure prairie league was a guy named herbalt and then cut to 25 years later, I get asked to fill in on the movie Almost Famous for some concert scenes they were doing down in San Diego. And I walk in and the key grip on the movie is Herbalt. Really? Yeah. He had That's left incredible. the rock and roll business, become a key grip. Very famous. He just passed away this last year, um, but became a very famous key grip, did a lot, a lot, a lot of, a lot of movies. So it was like, hey, I know you. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, and then what happened basically was, uh, you know, when I worked for Pat Travers for a number of years, uh, I got to be friends with uh, Pat Thrall, who was one of the two guitar players from yeah. the band. Yeah. And he started a band with uh, Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. Yeah. And so I started working for them. He's still but... out gigging right now, and he still sings like a bird, Glenn Hughes. It's unreal. I know. It's crazy considering the amount singer. of cocaine that that kid does. No, but still, he's got to be mid-70s, and he yeah, still least. sings so well. And the high stuff, too. Like, those people blow yeah. me away, you know? I was yeah. a singer growing up, and I can't, I can't hit half the stuff that I tried to sing when I was 17, 18 years old, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it's crazy. Anyways. Sorry. Well, the, the, the huge thrall thing, um, I got kind of sucked into working in the management side of things between tours, you know. What was that band called? Was it Hughes Thrall? Hughes, Hughes Thrall, oh, yeah. I, don't, I didn't even know that one. Interesting. Yeah, there's, 
Their record is one of the like six pieces of vinyl I still own. You know, I got rid of all my vinyl over the years, and it's one of the few pieces I actually hung on to. But I'm gonna go look because I was like I tour managed for Animotion for a while, and on the last Pat Travers tour I did, um, they um, they couldn't afford the tour accountant and the lighting designer for a European tour they were doing. So they basically asked the tour accountant if he could do lights, and he said no. And then they asked me if I could count, and I became the tour accountant. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. So the touring stuff was more and more less lighting and more management side, which got to be unfun again. Yeah. So what, what happened was um, around that time, it was the early 80s, you know, 83, 84, and um, Richard – and I were both getting these calls for um, this new thing they were doing, these things called music videos. Yeah. And whenever they wanted to do a concert performance thing, because we had some kind of TV experience, film experience, they would call us and we'd come in and do, you know, the put up a lighting system and work with the DPs. And we started to know a bunch of the DPs. So when I couldn't do one, he'd do it for me. And when he couldn't do one, I'd do it for him. And we're getting called to consult on concert film shoots and stuff like that. And he was the one that came to me and he said, he said, look, why don't we start a lighting company and do lighting design for TV and films? And I was like, eh, I don't know, you know, it sounds really boring. I'd rather, you know, be on the road. And he said to me, he said, do you really want to be that 55 year old guy out on the road, living on a bus with no relationship and nothing else in life, but what's in the suitcase? And I was like, I got this instant image. And I had known a few of the older guys who were still touring, you know, that were in their late fifties and stuff was like, yeah, let's start a TV lighting company. Yeah. And so we started ocean rose and wow, uh, it was all of 84. Organic, huh? Yeah. That's, that's it was cool. what the way we started was, um, we heard that Dick Clark productions was doing the volunteer jam, Charlie Daniels volunteer jam. And we cold called them and got to the associate producer on the show. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but we already have somebody. And what, what happened was a few weeks later, or maybe a month later, we got a call from them and saying, hey, we have this show we're going to do at the Coconut Grove, the Black Gold Awards with Lou Rawls, and we'd like you to come in and do the show. What I didn't know then, and I found out later, was the guy who had been doing like a bunch of shows for them, including like New Year's Rock and Eve, blew up the Transformer when they went live on the cable ace awards and they went live to air with two follow spots. <laughs> so they were looking for a new guy. It wasn't his fault, you know, yeah. transformer blowing. Some, yeah, somebody but, had to take the blame. Yeah. yeah. So they called us. Um, we said, yes. Um, we put a budget together for the show. Uh, we did the show at the coconut grove. Um, I think show lights was the vendor probably. And I think we lost about 500 bucks doing it, you know, because we were so bad at budgeting at that point. Yeah. But right afterwards, they called us and said, hey, we're doing New Year's Rock and Eve. The Hollywood party is going to be at the Coconut Grove. We want you to do that. And that started a run of about 135 shows we did with Dick Clark while wow. Ocean Rose was around. Yeah. I mean, we started doing that same year. The next that was New Year's Rock and Eve 85 in January of 85. Um, we got called in to do the uh, Golden Globe Awards. The previous lighting designer had gotten to an argument with the production designer over what color to light the set. <laughs> and he won the argument and lost the job. Jesus. So they called us in and we came in and did the job. And that just led one thing led to another. And 
we had a lot of work with Dick Clark Productions. We did a lot of work with um, uh, Paul Flattery and Jim Yukich, which were two, a direct, uh, Flattery's a producer, Yukich is a director. They worked for EMI Music Video, then they worked for Picture Music International, then they started their own company, FYI. And so we would do a bunch of shows for them. And that kind of led, Ocean, Ocean Rose was around for like 14 years. So when you started Ocean Rose, first of all, was there an argument about whether it was Rose Ocean or Ocean Rose, or did that just? Uh, not really. Happen? Ocean Rose just sounded better. It really yeah. did. You know, um, At the time, you know, Richard was, it, well, it's O comes before R to start yeah. with, you know, and it was like, yeah, Ocean Rose sounds better than Rose Ocean anyways. Yeah. So you didn't go home wasn't to your really... wife or girlfriend or significant other and go, you know, should I be mad about this? Like, is this a problem? You know, actually, oddly enough, we started that company and a year later is when I started dating my now wife. So that oh, was 38 cool. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. But, you know, so did you guys just basically both say, okay, here's 5,000 bucks, here's 5,000 bucks, we're 50-50, let's go start the company? Was it that simple? Or I don't think we actually had any money to start with at all, but it was like, it's like, okay, what do we, what is it going to take to do this? All right, well, we made a deal with Showlights to net 90 on the, on the back end. We got a deposit from Dick Clark to do the show. You know, um, I think that, I don't remember if we, I don't think we did the payroll. I think we let them do the payroll because we didn't want the liability of the payroll. Mm. But we packed the equipment. We were LD gaffer, huh. Richard and I. Yeah. So we would, it was like, because we didn't want to give up the gaffer's money. Yeah. So, you know, so of course the guys who were working for us who were actually gaffing never really liked the fact that we were LD gaffer because they were getting, <laughs> you know, best boy money for doing yeah. basically the gaffer's job. Yeah. But that's kind of when we started out. And then eventually what happened is, you know, Richard would be doing shows. I would be doing shows. So, you know, we'd have our own crews, you know, after a few years. So was it like a collective, the company? Like, did you still do your own gigs outside of the company and then some inside the company? No, we, had, we agreed to do everything inside the company. Oh, you know, okay. that was part of the agreement. We, I mean, we really didn't have a, a an actual partner's agreement at the time. It was just kind of a handshake. Here's what we're going to do. Oh, that's and interesting. yeah. And so it was everything runs through the company we split everything 50 50. and that's the way it went until like the last year and then and in the last couple of years what happened was um it richard wasn't quite working nearly as much as i was and so there were these numbers that these big numbers and i was like okay well this is not really that fair so why don't we do this we this much is 50 50 and then there's a commission on the packaging for whoever got the package. Yeah. And that went on for a few years like that to kind of balance things out. Which, which isn't unusual. Cause like I've done partnerships where, you know, it's, it's 50 50, but one guy makes a higher salary because he's actually working more hours. For example, like he's, mm -hmm. I'm spending 10% of my time in the business. He's spending a hundred percent of his time. He should obviously make a nice big fat salary, which I don't get because I'm just right. a partner at that point, right? A, an investor. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, obviously, like you guys went from what eighty four to ninety eight, right? Correct. A long time, yeah. yeah, and very successful. I mean, just a massive number of television shows and videos. Yeah, and it's interesting. Ocean Rose was. Other than the Dick Clark Productions and some of the other companies that were our, our clients that would call us, we were usually the second or third call. The The first call was usually Bob Dickinson. 
Yeah. Everybody in TV was looking for Bob Dickinson. If Bob right. wasn't available, they might call for Kieran Healy or Simon Miles, you know, in over those years. But if those guys weren't available, that's when we'd get called. And we were yeah. fine with that. It's it's interesting because we worked for Dick Clark and Dick Clark was not exactly known for being a philanthropist. Um, the budgets were small and tight. And so we kind of got a rep for being able to be the guys to pull it out when there was yeah. no money. Unfortunately, that means that when you have no money, we're the guys you call, <laughs> which is not exactly the way you want to be. Yeah, you don't want to be in that position because then yeah. the other issue with that is when you're the low cost leader, you always have to be the low cost leader, right? So as soon as your prices are a little higher than somebody else's, they get the gig instead of you now. So now you're somewhere in the middle right. and that sucks. Yeah. But you're getting the calls saying. based on how much you can do it for now because they want you to do it. Nah, that sucks. Yeah. And it, it took it took some time for us to kind of and we had to do some interesting kind of market analysis in order to figure out that that's what was going on. And it, it helped. We were able to kind of make some changes and do some things. And, you know, I mean, we were successful for 14 years and we had never had a bad never had a, a, a negative year, really. I mean, we had decent years and a few good years. Um, but what kind of put the, the kibosh on it was that. Um, Actually, what happened was I got an offer from Design Partners. Yeah. And when I got that offer, um, it was uh, it came out of the blue. I guess you know Greg Brunton originally had talked to the lady who was the managing partner and told her to come and talk to me. And uh, we had lunch, and she said, "Well, look, here's the deal. We'd like you to come over." And there's a, I think at the time there were eight or nine other LDs. Um, there was uh, 56 union hours a week, 50 weeks a year, which was not what I was getting in union money. You know, so the motion picture health plan, which was, you know, now I'm in 98. It's like I'm in my 30s. It's time to kind of think about, you know, future, stuff like yeah. the pension and retirement. Yes. Yeah. And um, actually, my wife had worked for Nordstrom for a number of years and we had their benefits for a long time. And then she oh, left nice. to work for a couple other companies, fragrance companies. And we went to paying for our own benefits and that was getting really expensive. Yeah. And so when they had long-term, short-term disability, um, an office staff to deal with the paperwork and follow up on chasing down money. And so it was like, it was basically, you know, the Godfather movie and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. What was the next and step in your lunch, evolution too? Cause you talked about, you know, touring and, and the insecurity of being on a tour bus and all that to the security of, you know, staying at home and doing television work and blah, blah, blah. And then this was sort of the the next step in, in your evolution, I guess, in that and regard. At the time, what I had asked is I said, well, would you like to bring us both over? And they just really weren't interested in Richard at the time. Oh. So that was what made it a kind of difficult decision. Yeah. Yeah. There wouldn't have been any thought involved if they wanted both of us. But and that honestly, I love Richard Ocean. He's a great person and a wonderful human being, but he sometimes gets in his own way on set as far yeah. as designing stuff. You know, it's like he 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 can't stop. It's funny. I was talking to the um, what used to be the head of our union who worked with Richard on a bunch of projects, and mm -hmm. he called me for a project. And I said, well, don't you usually talk to Richard? He goes, I love Richard. He just doesn't know when he's done. Ooh. So it's, so it's like he. Do you ever hear the term unkapachke? No. It's a Yiddish term, and, and it means when you screw with something until you can't possibly screw with it anymore, and then okay. you screw with it some more. 
I'm, yeah. I'm an Ucha Kapachke or <laughs> whatever you just said. Ucha Pachke. I'm one you of know, them. Around, Pachke around with something is fool around with something. Yeah. Ucha Pachke is when you take it to the nth degree and you can't stop fooling around with it. Yeah, I've been known so, to do that a couple times. I, I just, you know, I couldn't turn down the deal. I really couldn't turn yeah. down the deal. And I felt bad about closing the company out, and but it was what had to be done at the time. And I came into Design Partners and... You know, it was great because if I wasn't available, my clients were more than likely to find somebody else out of the nine that they would accept. And I started picking up jobs between jobs from other LDs that were in the company. So, and it, you know, it's like we we got involved in doing previs very early on when Vision first started coming out. We built a little previs lab and all that stuff. So there was that side of things was really great as far as that goes. Unfortunately, what happened is. Um, over the years, people just died off and retired out. And yeah. it got down to the point there were like three of us left. And it was like, well, we can't really do this with three anymore. So, you know, that's yeah. why it ended in 98 in uh, 2016. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and did you and Richard end up like breaking at that point or were you still friendly right up until he, he died we've, recently, we've just a couple years ago? maintained right? a loose friendship. As a matter of fact, I was going up to um, do some uh, Milky Way shooting in uh, Joshua Tree and the southwest corner of the Mojave Desert, which is just below like Baker. Yeah. And um, he's living in Forest Falls, which is um, – up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, basically. He's right. living in a cabin up there. And so I stopped to see him and we had lunch while I was up there. So we talk occasionally on the phone and stuff like that. He's uh, He started writing, uh, which is something he had always kind of done. And he optioned a screenplay that's, I think, supposedly being made. And he actually just wrote a children's book, which has actually been released. Oh, and wow. I last saw him on Facebook he was doing readings of his children's book in little bookstores, which like seeing Richard with a bunch of these little kids around listening to him read his children's book. I think it's called Pete the Squirrel. Beat the Squirrel? Pete the Squirrel, yes. Oh, Pete the Squirrel. I thought you said Beat Pete. the Squirrel. <laughs> no, yeah, that's the children's like, wow. book. Beat the, beat <laughs> beat beat the, the Squirrel. squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, we're we're, we're not – there's no animosity there. I mean, I think when, when we closed the business down, I asked, you know, like, what do you want? And he said, I don't want anything. Just take it all. And I actually took all our show files and a bunch of the stuff from the office and put it in a storage locker. And then seven years later, went back and went, why am I keeping all this shit? Yeah. And got rid of, got rid of most of it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, all in all a successful uh, partnership and you guys both did well with it until it was time to end it. Like, yeah. You know, sometimes like Kenny Rogers always said, you got to know when to fold it. Right. And I've actually overextended a couple of times businesses or partnerships or relationships like that. And mm -hmm. you kind of look back and you go, well, the signs were all there. Like, why didn't we act on those signs earlier? You know, and I think it's everybody goes um, through that. Procrastination. Yeah. Or, you know, like, I really want to fuck with that. It's like, you know, well, it's, it's going to take work and I don't want to do it. You know, avoiding I could just stay here. Avoiding yeah. confrontation. Yes. I don't want to address it. You know, I just don't want to deal with it. Like how many people stay in bad marriages for, you know, 20 years longer than they should, you know, or five yeah. years or one year. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, 
where am I here? I, I have a list that I haven't even gotten to of things that I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously after Ocean Rose, you, you kind of blew up in some pretty big movies, right? Like you got into some really great opportunities after that. Like if I look at your, if I look at your list here, there's some pretty impressive stuff. I don't know. What are you looking at? Well, what you I mean, consider impressive it, and what I consider well, impressive. Well, I don't know. You're like, tell me some of the impressive ones. You know, I don't know what, what you had I mean, a lot I of fun with. There's funny, big names was, on here, <laughs> you know. You know, um, you know Dave Kanitsky, Gern? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, Gern and I, well, Gern called me for Yanni in, in 94 for the Acropolis show. Um, he They wanted to do this performance of the Acropolis and Gern knew that shooting it was going to be outside his wheelhouse. So he asked me to come in because we'd work together on some stuff. We, the two of us working together, making that project happen was like one of those things. It's like, I can't believe I'm here trying to light a fucking 2000 year old theater and dealing with the Greek historical commission about what I can and can't hang on the building. And, you know, the stuff that went on with that. But when that project was over and Yanni wanted to, well, when that was over, John Tesh called me and said, I want to do Red Rocks because, you know, Ch John Tesh used to play in Yanni's band years ago. Yeah. Says, I got to do a PBS special. Let's do Red Rocks. And so I did Red Rocks. And then Yanni called and said, we need to follow up the Acropolis concert. And we we needed to be much bigger because he sold like a million DVDs on Jeez. the PBS special, which made him a shitload of money. Yeah. And so he wanted to really blow it out. And the conversations around that, which is like, where are we going to do it? What's going to, what venues are going to be involved? How big is this thing going to be? I mean, we started doing, flying around the world doing scouts, right? You know, we scouted the Taj Mahal, we scouted the Forbidden City, we scouted Table Mountain in Cape Town, South Africa, which is, you know, miles wide. It's like, okay, how do you do, how do you light a mountain? You know, it's like, yeah. The, yeah. the idea is great. The, the reality of, getting enough lights to actually do it is kind right, of insane, yeah, but, you yeah. know, and then we were going to do Chichen Itza where the pyramid is, um, which is out in the middle of the Yucatan yeah, desert, yeah, of, you know, drunk jungle, there's nothing there. So it's like, you can't really get a crowd there. And so, okay, let's blow that off. What about Teotihuacan, the pyramid of the sun and the moon? Okay. And you're lighting two big pyramids. It's like, okay. So we went round and round and round about where we we're going to go and how much it was going to cost and what we could do. And venues would come in, venues come out, people would float crazy ideas about where would be a great place to do the show. And, you know, each time someone else came in and was looking at the budget, the budget number basically stayed the same, but the number of venues you could do for that amount of money went down. Uh. So, you know, it was like, well, we could do four or five venues for $12 million. Well, no, maybe four venues for 12. Well, maybe three venues for 12. How about we do the Forbidden City and the, and the Taj Mahal? So that process and, and, and working out all the details of actually lighting the Taj Mahal for the first time in history. So we were the first night we lit the Taj Mahal, Kern and I finished up. It was sunrise. You know, we're going back to the hotel. And that night bunch of clever Indians had gone out and taken pictures of the Taj Mahal with the lights on, printed postcards, and there were postcards of the illuminated Taj Mahal in the gift shop at the hotel no when we got way. back there in the morning. What? I, I think I said to Gern at the time, I said, you know, I says, that's it. That's going to be like, you know, 
on my tombstone, it's going to be first person in history to like the Taj Mahal. So it's like, if you want to say, what is it that's like the most, that's you know, wild. the biggest. Yeah. So that's massive. And that, that job and the end of that job, it's like, there was a guy, Bill Charrington. I don't know if you knew him. He was, he was, he was one of the guys that worked with us. He was from, I don't know if it was light and sound design or one of the companies, but we had these uh, eight foot color scrollers, yeah. you know, the mega mags that yeah. LSD yeah. had. Of course. And they were with two uh, 10Ks behind them and they were set to light a certain distance of the Taj Mahal. Well, all this light would attract all these insects, which would fly into the 10Ks, get fried, fall in the bottom of the color chain. Yeah. So his job was to take the shop vac out each morning and go out to the 10K college to the mega mags and suck the pile of bugs out of the bottom of it. Good so that's time. the kind of shit, like, that was like, oh, okay, that's your job, I guess. I guess. That, okay. is, that is so outrageous, though. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, that's basically, I, I think if I had to say what job was, I mean, you know, I enjoyed doing the Golden Globes for all the years that I, I liked it. 15, 16 years of the Golden Globes, whatever, right. 85 to 2001. And, you know, you sit in a room with 1,300 big celebrities from, from Hollywood. You know, I mean, when I started the show, it wasn't that big of a show. When I finished the show, it was kind of a big show. Right. Um, so that was interesting. Like, I remember standing at the, um, there was a front of house spot tower, and I'm standing next to the front of house tower. And the guy next to me says, I hate these things. And I turn and look, and it's Richard Widmark. And he's got a glass of scotch about that tall. <laughs> and he's just standing there drinking this scotch straight up, um, talking about how he hates to be at these award shows, but he had to be there because he was nominated for something. I don't know what it was. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. What was the first time you used moving lights? I think the first moving lights we did was Richard and I did a show for Dick Clark very early in our careers in the mid eighties, probably 85, 86 called Dick Clark's nighttime. And it was kind of a comedy interview music show. And there were like three or four stages in the performance stage. It was like a shitload of park hand. I actually still have a picture of that show. Um, and six Panda spots. Really? Yeah. Panda that spots was our, were your first, uh, your first movers. Yeah. I think that was the first show that we actually got movers on. And then, you know, the L2s. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And what about LED? What, what was, when did you commit in any way to LED stuff on TV or film? Um, probably late 2000s, I think we started looking at it. I did a, a seminar actually with um, the uh, Cinematography Guild. And it was called um, High Tech uh, Advanced Technology Lighting Equipment. And we talked about, um, we did some seminars on um, the differences between like RGBD, RGBA, RGBAW. And, um, we, we used, I don't know if you remember, ETC had that demo they used to do with the, when they bought Celador. Yeah. Um, yeah. The seven color LED yeah. demo. They had all these Hawaiian shirts. Well, I got those Hawaiian shirts and we set them up on stage and we were doing RGB Amber and then doing RGB AW Amber and doing color changes and showing these DPs the difference between what happens when you, when it looks like Amber, but it doesn't, the colors don't respond the same way. 
and we had cameras there to show what cameras would do. And we also had this um, a spectrometer that would do the the bar would do an actual spectral distribution graph of the lights we were seeing. So we kind of went through to show the the fact, and then we talked a lot about the the problem with moving lights is that um, when you have a camera sensor against an LED light, you have a quantifiable item with an unquantifiable item. The LED has peaks, right? But with film, you have a specific response curve that's that's flat. When you change that to a camera, now you, what you have is you have a response curve that has peaks of its own. So now you have to determine whether the peaks are interfering or enhancing any specific wavelength based on the wow. spectral distribution curves of the camera versus the LED, which is why basically the like the Academy of Science Arts, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Technology Council said that the only real way to deal with that is to test. Mm. That's the only answer is to actually test because every sensor has a slightly dis different spectral distribution response. And those peaks and valleys aren't flat the way that they are with film stock. So that you 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 have a known quantity with film stock and an unknown quantity with an LED, whereas you have an unknown quantity. So if you an LED that looks great with a you know a black magic, maybe look horrible with an Arri 635. You know, so wow. you, you can't tell really. And then then they started developing these additional um, spectral distribution numbers that like the TMI numbers and that that are that are better than just the the original numbers that we had to work with. You know, huh. yeah, I mean, when CRF was the only number. <laughs> right. I remember even in the earliest uh, days of moving lights, when I was selling moving lights, you know, the big problem was always like flicker rates and stuff. And you needed to be able to adjust flicker rates. And mm -hmm. um, but it became so much more technical when you got into LED sourced products uh, you know, because of probably everything that you're explaining right now. I never knew why. I always just said, yes, sir, and went back to engineers and said, fix this shit. That's this. You, know, yeah. you can't sell it if you don't fix this. Yeah, friggin' yeah, Dickinson's yelling at me or Barnard's yelling at me or whoever it was at the time, right? But When you have, um, like, LED fixtures from multiple different vendors, um, in the early days, the the that you could end up where you would correct the flicker in one light that would cause a flicker in another light. In other oh words, you, you could set a shut a rolling shutter speed or whatever to fix one light that would cause a problem with another light. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I, not, remember, I haven't noticed uh, that so much lately, though. I think, because you, everybody's yeah. kind of gone to these super high rates, and you really only have the problem when you're using slow-mo, when you're doing yeah. super slow-mo stuff. Well, and the other thing, too, was that I think in the earliest days of LEDs, like when people were using color blasts that were not meant to be used on television on shoots or whatever, like yeah. they were they were for lighting walls on the outside of buildings or whatever, right? And yeah. so, you know, the binning was was lower at the time where you could have different color LEDs and stuff like that. And it didn't mm -hmm. really matter until of course you got them on on uh film or video on or camera. Yeah. yeah, on camera. Can, can we take a break? I'm just going to run of to the course. restroom. Of course. Oh, perfect. Okay, we're back. We uh, Okay. We took, uh, what do you call them, bio breaks, as we yeah, call them. Going 10-1. So, yeah, we were just talking about LED fixtures and, and uh, 
You know, I think probably moving lights and the shift to LED were, I'm guessing, two of the bigger changes. Probably control as well, going to all the digital control, uh, starting with HOG2, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, the big change, you know, when we went from, you know, analog control to digital control was a big shift. And then the whole control system got more and more complex, which was good because it gave you more options of control. I, I know that, like, on New Year's Rock and Eve, as a show that, it, like, having done it for 38 years, I mean, it started with Parkans and ACLs and then color changers and then VL1s and VL2s. And over the years, it kind of kind of moved on. And then we got to the point where there was always a tungsten-based show. And then it slowly became like kind of halfway between tungsten and daylight. Yeah. You know, as the number of tungsten lights kind of went down and the number of arc source and LED lights went up. And then I remember the year that um, we, we dropped the last practicals out of the set. You know, the last MR16s left the set and there was yeah. no reason to be in tungsten at all. Right. And we went straight to daylight for the for basically, you know, 5000 Kelvin as a as a bit color balance for everything. And that's, you know, like, of course, as soon as you add screens, the screen guys are much happier when you can do that. Yeah. And what about like, uh, I think there's isn't there LED sky panels now like. Oh, well, yes, the sky panel most successful fixtures Aries ever designed you right. know people are ordering them by the hundreds yeah uh, and it's but they're what they rgbawlm i think is i'm not sure exactly yeah yeah i mean the sky panels you know again in my company which sells used lighting equipment and sound mm -hmm. equipment and stuff. Sky panels are always like they come in, they fly out the other end immediately. Cause it's not like they go bad or anything, you know, it doesn't matter well, if it's. The, talking to them when they first came up with them and. Um, Jesus name escaped me. He just retired too from, from Aerie. Yeah. I know exactly who you're. John Gretsch. Yeah. John I Gretsch. On my podcast. I was trying yeah. to remember his yeah. name too. It's like, yeah. You know, this is this is what happens at this age. It's like well, I know the guy. Well. I can see his face. <laughs> yeah. I can see his face, but I can't pull his name. John yeah. Gresh. Okay. Yeah. Well done. John Gresh told me that he was like panting at the cargo containers full of sky panels coming in because he had so many orders for him because they were such a successful fixture. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. did really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. We've covered a lot of stuff. Is there, uh, did I miss anything? What are we missing? I don't know. You're the one with the list. Yeah, I'm trying to, it's just such a big list. Your list is so big. It's overwhelming for me. You know, it's like thousands of television shows, hundreds of music videos. I mean, some of your music videos, you know, like bad English. When I see you smile, you know, I was a huge bad English fan. I loved that band. Uh, you know, that was Back in the early Ocean Rose days when they would say, we want to do a stage performance and they'd like rent a sound, you know, and so you design a rock and roll rig and bring yeah. it in for the day and shoot it, you know, like back then they used to call, they used to want to do a day rate and a yeah. day could be 26 hours, you know, because they would just shoot all night long. But there was some interesting guys working on some of that stuff. Um, I mean, I remember doing a, um, it was a Warrant music video, it was a, and one of the big hair '90s bands and Firehouse. Tom Ackerman, uh, Firehouse, yeah, Firehouse was um, at Zion National Park, outside Zion uh, National Park, uh, at a little amphitheater there. But there was this, and 
the DP was uh, Tom Ackerman, who was the guy who did Beetlejuice. Oh. Later in later years, he did Beetlejuice. So it's like you'd work with some of these guys, and then you come back. I mean, I remember doing music videos with guys like Paul Cameron, who's now you know big time DP doing big movies and all that stuff. So wow. it's like you see those guys, and you go, oh yeah, I remember when we used to like like try to get a sixteen millimeter camera in the corner and shoot all friggin' night long until we ran out of film. Uh, that kind of stuff. That's good. What about yeah, UFC? UFC was another one that jumped out at me because I remember uh, like in the early days of UFC. Um, Richard Tilly, Circuit Lighting, and George, the guy George, I thought was the LD for UFC, like in the earliest days, back before they had yeah. rules and stuff. Yeah, when UFC started, what happened was there was, um, do you remember King Biscuit Flower Hour? Of course, yeah. Yeah, that was, um, Bob Meyerowitz was the executive producer of that, his company in New York. And then they got the idea of doing live music pay-per-views and they were called Thursday night concerts. Yeah. And so his company SEG was doing these Thursday night concerts. We would do, I think we did a Bonnie Ray. We did a Stevie Ray Vaughan. We would do these pay-per-views and he really wasn't making any money on the pay-per-views. And then Royce Gracie and this guy, Art Davies came to him and said, listen, we got this ultimate fighting championship we want to bring out and we need to do, we want to do pay-per-views. So basically they called all these people like us who were doing the director and everybody who was doing these music video pay-per-views and said, okay, we're doing this fight. And so the first one was, I believe in Denver in 93. And we came in and we couldn't believe what they were doing in the ring. Cause it was definitely, there are no rules at that point. Yeah. It was crazy. And yeah. And it was as I, I mean, I think I did the first 13, of them and so we would go to town we would either start to get set up or we would be on the way to town and like the local boxing commission would say you can't do it here and they tear everything down and move to a new city when we did the one in puerto rico the mayor went on the radio in the afternoon and suggested that people come and um picket the show because it was so violent and so we were concerned that the city-owned arena was going to turn the power off. So at the last minute, we were we were digging up generators to move everything to generators that we could have security around so that they couldn't cut the power to the show. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it just was, it was insane. It was I very think crazy. I, I connected with them a little later. I, I was with High End, I think, at the time. And uh, it was Richard Tilley's and Circuit Lighting out of, I think, Philly or something, maybe New Jersey. I don't remember. But um, George, George was the name of the LD. Who, yeah, they brought, who took a, it over. they brought a, they, they, they brought in a guy who was a sports guy as a kind of a tech coordinator for the whole thing. Okay. And he kind of took himself into producing the producing role. And he kept telling the executive producers that you're spending too much money on lighting and you're spending too much money on crew. You don't need the, 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 the top end camera guys. You need sports guys. Yeah. So slowly, but surely he got rid of everybody that was doing the Thursday night concerts. Yeah. And it became mostly sports guys. Yeah. And, you know, at the time it was like, I didn't exactly love the show. I'm not a big, you know, mixed martial arts or yeah. cage fighting guy. I remember the first one, there was a, a karate guy fighting like a sumo guy and the karate guy kicked the 
sumo guy in the face and knocked a tooth out, which we saw flying across the screen. It was like, I, I looked at the, oh at the producer who was like a music producer, right? Yeah. And the director, who's another music director, and we're looking at each other going, what do we, what do we got That's ourselves insane. into? That's insane. Yeah. Now, well, when... I, still do, I still do have the jacket, the staff jacket from the original Ultimate oh, Fighting wow. Champions. I think number three, I think, is when we got the jacket. Probably worth some money. Um... Yeah, I just... It's funny. I saw the sweats up there too. They're on top of my That's cabinet hilarious. over there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's amazing. I mean, that whole story, like where Dana White bought the company for $2 million or whatever, and it's now worth like billions of dollars. It's just, well, when somebody says success. they're on, they're on UFC 297. Right. And I go, well, I did the first 13, you That's know, incredible. and Bob Meyerowitz, the guy who sold it to Dana has got to be kicking himself in the ass, you know, no shit. Yeah. yeah, but but I mean, they created it. They they, you know, what happened after them is is when it really got big, yes. and it was because yeah. they they no longer had to be these Yahoo cowboys saying we're gonna do it our way and we don't want rules and all of this stuff. Like, okay, let's put rules, let's put time limits, let's listen to all of these boxing commissions and stuff because it was literally being held in like Mississippi and. Alabama, like Alabama, little yeah. towns and stuff. Casper, Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I said so we did. We, we did Denver, Casper, Alabama. I'm trying to remember Puerto Rico. I remember doing Puerto Rico. Yeah, but it was just. It was like, are we going to get the show off this time, or yeah. are they going to kick us yeah, out of town? It was, tough. it was tough. Yeah. Well. Lee, I've actually already downloaded that album that you told me about, the Glenn Hughes one. And uh, okay. <laughs> I look forward to some Milky Way the pictures. Hughes yes, I, I will I will send you a link to a folder of uh, my some of my favorites for Milky Ways. Now that'd be awesome. And I'll I'll send you yeah. a link to the uh, to the podcast so you can take a listen, share it with people who matter. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do it. I, I uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you. Some I appreciate you asking, and I'm um, glad we managed to finally actually pull it together after several shots at it, yeah, <laughs> including the tech, including the tech crash the and burn this morning. Yeah, yeah, we should have recorded the outtakes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. All right, my friend. All right, thank well, you thanks, very much. Marcel. All right, buddy. Okay. Have a good one. See ya.